This week, the choice opened the Allies on the side of Ukraine became clear and stark. Continue drip-feeding weapons to Ukraine, and the outcome may well be a stalemate that Russia would regard as a victory, and which may ensure Putin retains his grip on the country. Or give Ukraine the tools it needs to do the job to eject Russia from its territory. After months of speculation, prevarication, and some dissension within the alliance, the scales seem to have tipped decisively in favor of the latter. Please like and subscribe to see more great speakers and content on the Silicon Curtain channel. Richard Sheriff is co-founder and managing partner at Strategia Worldwide. After graduating from Oxford, he served in the British Army for 37 years, commanding soldiers on operations or in combat at every level, from platoon to division, and rising to the highest rank before retiring from the Army as NATO's Deputy Supreme Commander Europe. Richard is co-founder and managing partner of Strategia Worldwide, and in 2016, his novel, 2017, War with Russia, was published in the UK, USA and Poland. It became a bestseller and has been translated into eight languages. He is also an honorary fellow of Exeter College, Oxford. Well, I hope all those details were correct. Of course, your, your biography uh, runs to many more pages, but uh, that would fill the, the entire hour that we've got. Uh, it is. It's, it's pretty, pretty correct. Thank you, Jonathan. And thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, I, I was watching uh, one of your first interviews when this war unfolded, um, and it seems to me to be as accurate uh, today as it was then. And you pinpointed that this is the most dangerous moment in Europe since World War II. Uh, do you still sort of uh, think that's the case? I, I do. Uh, and it continues to be and it will continue to be. And I think we have to recognize that there will never be peace in Europe while Putin or a Putin lookalike ultranationalist hell bent on rebuilding a Russian empire is, is in power in the Kremlin. And I think from from watching Russia as an adversary for for many decades, um, the thing that uh, Russian leaders need to have to carry sway with their people is strength, isn't it? Strength and power uh, are what are required to stay on top of that pyramid. Would losing in Ukraine, would even losing Crimea uh, be a symbolic blow against Putin's uh, uh, you know, image as a strong man? I think it would. I mean, you think back to 2014, March the 14th, the day that Crimea was incorporated into the Russian Federation, and the mass crowds in Red Square waving banners, you know, Russia Slava, Putin Slava, Russian glory, Putin, Putin glory. His, his popularity ratings have never been higher. And, and I think conversely, if Russia suffers a major defeat, a catastrophic defeat, which is what the loss of Crimea would amount to, that will really shake Putin's position to its foundations. Now, you wrote the fictional book, which I uh, mentioned in the intro about uh, a war with Russia. Uh, that's sort of five years ago now. Is reality, however, proving to be far uh, less predictable than fiction? I think the reality is predictable. I mean, I predicted that Russia would attack Ukraine. I said it would go on to attack the Baltic states. Well, thank God it has not come to that yet uh, because Russia has found itself so fixed in Ukraine. I, I think what has not, what I don't think anybody could have conceived of, and certainly I couldn't conceive of it, was quite the depth of genocide, massacre, 
mass use of rape as a, as a weapon of war and the sort of depravity and ghastly violence that we've seen Russia visit upon Ukraine and the Ukrainian people, Ukrainian cities, Ukrainian women and children. I mean, that, of course, is a stark echo, isn't it, of uh, the Red Army's taking of Berlin, where you hear exactly the same stories of mass rape, terror, murder, as they marauded their way across across Europe. And then, of course, anyone <clears throat> who's familiar with uh, how Russia imposed its will on Eastern Europe for, for 50 years, uh, this is a horrific echo of it. But I, I guess... We didn't expect it to to repeat in 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 such a way in the twenty first century. I think that's exactly it. Yes, I mean, you know, of course, the stories of nineteen forty five and the way the Red Army behaved in its subjugation and crushing of of, of Nazism um, are, are the stuff of history now. Uh, and and I don't think anybody could have conceived that in. In, in in the world that we live in now, this increasingly closely connected world, hard on the heels of you know the World Cup in Moscow and 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 Russian outreach, Russians living in London, that we could see Russia do quite what it has done in Ukraine. And I think we have to recognise that this is fundamentally a form of genocide. Russia, Putin wants to wipe Ukraine off the map as a as a state. And the way you do that is not only to crush it politically and militarily, uh, but you do it by by raping its women and destroying and killing and massacring its people. And that is what... So this is sanctioned from the very top. It's not just bad behaviour, ill discipline by, uh, by the Russian military, which it is in spadelets, of course, but it's absolutely sanctioned from the top. And we have to tackle that lie, which is still pervasive, unfortunately, that this is Putin's war. He may have made the decision uh, with a tiny coterie of his advisors to actually launch the war. It may have come as a surprise um, to many people in the administration, the apparatchik and so on, who perhaps were not prepared for it. Nonetheless, an invasion on this scale, it involves millions of bodies, doesn't it? Millions of, of, of humans, um, one would hope, with, with, with minds that, that think about what they're doing. This is not just one man's effort. These crimes have been committed and enabled by many, many millions of people. This is, this is the Russian Fed Federation's war. And I say that advisedly because certainly in the initial stages, many of the troops, the vast majority of the troops who... Who who took the fight to into Ukraine came from you know far away states in the Caucasus and, and and Russia's far east and so this is firmly Russia's war absolutely. And this week, I mean, we're one of the big topics we were going to discuss today was the need for heavy armor uh, to be sent to Ukraine to help them win rather than simply hold the line. Of course, yesterday's events have uh, somewhat changed the agenda here. Um, what do you think has pushed Germany over the cultural and political obstacle um, to actually agree to send leopard tanks and to approve the export licenses uh, across the um, the alliance that holds many hundreds of these uh, units? Well, of course, we've yet to see an official statement from Germany that it will, but all the indications are that Germany will send tanks and that America will send tanks as well. Um, I think what has finally pushed them has been America agreeing to send M1, the, the M1 Abrams tank, because initially America was reluctant. Um, 
I think for a number of reasons. Firstly, let's dispel any idea that the M1 is not M1 Abrams tank is not suitable for uh, the steppes of eastern Ukraine. It's a superb tank, and it's absolutely suitable for that terrain. Um, I think the challenge with the M1 Abrams is that it's logistically um, very demanding. Uh, in common with many large American um, machines, it's a hell of a gas guzzler. It's a it, it has a gas turbine engine and it just drinks fuel. Um, and you have to think about tanks in the context of the 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 tank. The, an armored capability is not just the machine. It's as well as that. It's the logistics. It's the recovery. It's the repair, it's the spares, it's the fuel, uh, and it's the combined arms capability that goes with it. Um, Germany has tanks in, clearly, obviously in Germany, but there are some 2,000 Leopard 2s across Europe. Many other armies use them. Um, the bulk of American M1 Abrams are in, in the States. So, of course, it makes sense for uh, the, the Leopard 2 to, to be deployed. I should also add, it would also make sense for Britain to send many more Challenger 2s, but we might come back to that. But to answer, come back to your question, um, this is about this. I think the key thing was the international pressure. Um, the the loss of reputation for Germany has been catastrophic here. I think there were many of us who were thinking that Germany's reluctance procrastination was all about, as you said in your opening remarks, accepting pushing for a negotiated ceasefire by not letting Ukraine have the offensive capability required to to retake Ukrainian territory and to defeat the Russians. And that therefore this was a way by Germany, by subterfuge of undermining what is effectively the NATO strategy of giving Ukraine the tools it needs to do the job. Fortunately, it appears that that is not the case, but nevertheless, Germany's reputation will have have taken a hell of a blow by this procrastination. And of course, if we're being charitable, we could uh, pin this on um, pacifism and the culture uh, that emerged after the Second World War. I mean, a very necessary one uh, where violence is, is abhorred. Um, if one is being cynical, however, and you look at Nord Stream and the economic self-interest that uh, Germany has pursued over the last couple of decades, that really flies in the face of strategic interests uh, cozying up to Russia, one could almost be cynical and say that they don't want Russia or they didn't want Russia to lose decisively because they'd want to hold the door open to normalise economic relations after the conflict. I think both of those arguments are very powerful. I think, yes, there is a, and I've lived many years in Germany, as you'd expect, being based in Germany as a, as actually an armoured soldier, a tank soldier in Germany for many years of the Cold War and subsequently. Um, there is a level of deep pacifism in Germany, which of course is 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 drawn from the albatross that hangs around its neck as a result of the history of the, 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 the 20th century. Um, and the use of, which sees the use of legal force by the state as, as something almost unacceptable in a way which is not simply not the case in this country or in the United States. Um, so there is that layer. But I think also it goes further. The, the so-called the Russische Verstehr, the Russian understanders, have always played a significant part in Germany, German politics since the end of the, of the, of the Second World War. 
um, the SPD has reached out, whether it was Ostpolitik, finding ways of accommodation or coming to uh, to understanding. And, you know, as a result of having a large half of Germany is under 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 communism. So, you know, all these come together, I think, to to to, to color it. But I think your point about the cynicism, almost the, the cynicism of economic self-interest and appeasement um, in ignoring the reality of the threat posed by Russia is very strong. But equally, I would say. Uh, Germany has not been alone in ignoring the threat from Russia because I think many other nations felt that uh, took that view. Uh, I can remember a, a certain foreign secretary in this country saying, when I'm telling John Humphreys on the Today program when my book came out, uh, which forecast that war Russia would attack, he his quote his comment quote unquote was, "I do not, I, I don't know anybody who thinks like that." Um, so there's been an element of heads in sand by the by a, by a lot of ostriches on this one. And we'd have to point out for balance, I think, and Lucas would take me to account if I didn't mention this, the City of London and our own economic interests in the UK have often uh, bypassed uh, perhaps concerns we should have had about um, oligarchs, their relations to Putin, their relations to the regime and the nature of that regime. So the UK is certainly not immune from from that historic criticism either absolutely i mean london grad has has has, and needs to look to itself you know it's not just it's it's not just germany Uh, and a lot of lawyers bankers accountants and other professionals in london have benefited huge investment managers have benefited hugely from russian money and many of them uh, again i've had I've, i've 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 i can remember speaking engagements with with many of them who really did not like being told that Russia was a, was a, was 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 a serious threat, I think I hope that the scales have been removed from their eyes now. I hope so as well. We'll, we'll come to that uh, in a minute towards the end. You know what we do about Russia uh, when the war is over. But I wanted to bring back something you mentioned a minute ago, which is um, the challengers, Abrams. You've got Bradleys. You've got French vehicles. You've got. Um, uh, other other uh, you know armored armored vehicles. There's incredible uh, variety of machinery that's being sent, and they may have sort of common NATO standards in terms of uh, our um, sort of artillery shells and so on. But what are the challenges for Ukrainians to uh, actually master this mind-boggling array of equipment uh, from a logistical training and maintenance point of view? Well, it's a logistic and training nightmare, frankly. Um, you know, this Noah's Ark of vehicles and equipment and guns and artillery pieces and uh, and the plethora of ammunition um, is a massive challenge for for the Ukrainians. Um, they will need a real. They'll need huge support and and assistance in in resolving it. Um, and it's about you know because it's about training training all not only the crews of the vehicles, the tanks, the armored personnel carriers and the like in the use of them but it's about training the fitters the mechanics the recovery experts who in order to to show that ensure they have the logistic capability and, and the means to support them um however i mean that's a classic case of where there's a will there's a way and my goodness me the ukrainians have shown us that where there's a will there is absolutely a way and with the right support i'm sure they will get on top of it but it's not an easy thing for uh, a commander, a military for- formation commander, and his staff or her staff to to deal with if you've got this plethora of different capabilities and vehicles. 
And you mentioned earlier also the need not just to maintain the the equipment, but to actually learn the techniques of combined arms, which are going to be critical in actually deploying and leveraging that equipment. Um, The Ukrainian army, however, has been training on that for years, hasn't it? And training to a NATO standard. Um, I hope they have. Yes. I mean, I'm sure they have. And the the way they've demonstrated their uh, ability, their military capability says to me that they do absolutely understand the importance of the combined arms battle. Um, And this this for the uninitiated is is about the complex orchestra uh, of different weapons and different capabilities. So tanks, the traditional combined arms capabilities of tanks, armoured infantry fighting vehicles, self-propelled artillery, armoured engineers, air defence, attack aviation uh, and air, all coming together in a combined way under a single commander in order to produce a synergistic effect in which the vulnerabilities of one weapon system, such as, for example, the vulnerabilities of a tank in built-up or forested areas, uh, are offset by the strengths of another capability, the infantry, for example, and the, the, the converse applies in perhaps open country. But on top of that, 21st century conflict requires what I think of as the new combined arms warfare. So uh, cyber, drones, in, satellite intelligence capabilities, um, and, and other, other, other new capabilities, which are now providing capability in a sort of form of uh, precision down to really quite a low level, which was previously the preserve of of of, of special forces or or, or or strategic level commanders. So it requires and that requires training. You don't do this just you know it's like putting a football team or a rugby team uh, onto the pitch. You don't you don't you don't you know you don't put the um, the British Lions up against the All Blacks unless they've done some serious training and working together uh, and drill en- endless drills and establishing. Uh, that understanding of of the science of war uh, to ensure that when you need to, you can deliver it. And that's what the, that's what the militaries do. Endless training. And as an ex-tank commander, I can tell you, you know, one spent days, weeks, months training. Uh, and then as we did, for example, in the first Gulf War, we got it together for, for real. But it was that level of depth of experience, which we'd had in peacetime training, which allowed us uh, to deliver the, the goods when it came to it. One of my speakers has pointed something out quite interesting there, because we know that Russia do huge annual drills. They do massive sort of set piece um, engagements, potentially with tens and tens of thousands of uh, of troops there. Um, and often they'll have their allied um, countries uh, working with them on that. But one of my speakers pointed out that there's a huge difference between the way the say NATO, the US and the UK train and the way Russia trains. And in Russia, it's much more sort of big set pieces almost to create an incredible panorama for the cameras and for the leaders sitting in the stadium watching it all. But on the ground, the troops are perhaps getting far less practical experience. Um, Do you have any insight into into the lack of Russian training? Well, I think the insight, you know, the obvious insight into the lack of Russian training has been the Russian performance in in, in this war, uh, because it's quite clear from that that they have no real understanding of the integration of combined arms, as I described earlier. I mean, just think back to those tank columns, uh, Russian tank columns in built-up areas advancing on Kiev and being destroyed by well-sighted, courageous Ukrainian anti-tank uh, missile uh, carriers. Um, 
So quite clear they haven't got it. And you're absolutely right. This is something that West, certainly the British Army does very well, and I know the Americans do and other NATO armies do, which is 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 training as realistically as you possibly can and making the environment as realistic as possible through what is called force on force. So equipping, um, you put together, you know, there is a, a well-established opposing force, an op for or representing the enemy. And you have laser systems which allow armored vehicles, tanks, and indeed infantry to shoot at each other. And the laser detector, which picks up if you are hit, and you very, very quickly learn to make use of ground and to use artillery and all the other supporting arms in order to support your advances. Because if you don't, you just get taken off the battlefield pretty quickly, which is rather uncomfortable. And then, of course, you debrief in great detail afterwards, after action reviews, to see where you've gone wrong and ensure you get it better next time. And I guess an open, an open-minded and, and critical um, approach to that is important. You know, being able to perhaps even criticize, um, you know, officers and so on for strategic decisions. We know that the Russian vertical system does not encourage criticism. At least juniors are not encouraged to criticize uh, uh, their seniors or peers because, uh, well. You know, at best, they won't get promotion. At worst, something rather rather nasty might happen to them. Is that also perhaps a factor why uh, Russia seems not to learn from its mistakes? I think what you see in Russia is the legacy of a very highly centralized Soviet command and control system um, where people, subordinates, are afraid to make decisions because if they get it wrong, it's the salt mines or it's Siberia or, or, or the firing squad. Or, or their family get you know get taken out um so i think i think absolutely that plays its part i think the other the converse of course is 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 the way the ukrainians have espoused the notion of what's called mission command which in other words is empowering empowering subordinates to use their initiative ensuring that they understand the commander's intent at a, at a high level but also at a tactical level ensuring that they have the resources they need and then expecting them and expecting to be, them to use their initiative to get on with it. Because however junior, a, you know, a junior NCO guarding or observing on the ground way forward can see things much, much more clearly than any general sitting in a remote headquarters. Uh, so empowerment initiative, use of initiative through mission command is a fundamental uh, enabler uh in to, for, for military success and the russians simply don't have that the ukrainians have learned that uh very successfully i think in the last eight nine years since 2014 and now uh we have this heavy armor lining up one assumes it would take several weeks to get that in place does it make an assault against crimea more realistic what are the challenges of that and how would uh the tanks be deployed in pushing through in such an operation well, it, 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 when when and if Ukraine gets the numbers of the, the numbers it needs, so Zalushki, the uh, Ukrainian commander in chief, has said he wants three hundred tanks, four to five hundred armored infantry fighting vehicles, five hundred artillery pieces. When and if they get that, clearly they're going to need to train on it. Uh, they're going to need to ensure that the logistics are in place, and we've just discussed the complexities of that. Um, they will have thought through and war-gamed a range of offensive operations and operational plans. Uh, they will be putting together, um, they'll be putting together a deception operation as well, I'm sure. 
Um, so all this, it, providing they get the resources, makes an, a Ukrainian offensive increasingly viable. And there has to be an offensive. If Ukraine is to recapture the territory it's lost, it has to go on to the attack. And you can also expect, of course, the Russians have a vote here. They're planning, no doubt at all, a spring offensive as well. Uh, Putin is mobilizing, will be mobilizing more manpower, scooping up young men and not so young men off the streets to put them into the battle, probably with, with very little training as well. So you're going to see this mass sort of human wave tactics that we've seen around Bakhmut and Solidar continue and mass casualties by the Russians. But at the same time, the Ukrainians will be planning their piece. So it's going to be 2023 is going to be uh, the campaigning season, which is, uh, let's be clear, the winter continues and the, the fighting continues uh, on the front. But I think we can expect to see that fighting open up into much more man mobile maneuver warfare uh, because it's going to have to be. And if Ukraine has the armor together, of course, with all the supporting arms and the attack, act, attack and at, attack helicopters and air to support it, then I can see I could see Ukraine seeking a to break a breakthrough battle in one one section of the front, perhaps soaking up Russian uh, offensive uh, uh, offensive attacks in another, breaking through. And then I think all roads do lead to Crimea because I'm sure that coming back to your earliest points about Crimea, what Ukraine will be seeking to do is to unhinge the Russians, the unhinge the Russian decision makers because that is the art of war to make the political leadership realize that they, they've, they've, they've lost. If Ukraine tries to attack across its whole front, which is over a thousand kilometers, it's going to get nowhere. So it's got to concentrate force in a specific area, achieve a breakthrough, and then go for it. And if it can get into, get into Crimea uh, and force the surrender of the Russians in Crimea, well, then it is in a very strong position. But it's easy to say, it's a hell of a challenge for them to do that. And there's a long way to go before they're, they're going to be in a position to do that. But as in anything strategic, you have to think, where do I want to be? What is my destination? What is my desired end state? And then work back uh, along the, as it were, along that the route to that destination to put in place the pathway uh, that you need and then put construct a plan that allows, you know, that, that allows you to fight the tactical battles, which are the steps along that pathway, ultimately leading to uh, your strategic goals. I mean, that's one of the extraordinary aspects of this when you see some of the satellite imageries um, and the tactics broken down is on what a vast, vast front uh, this war is being fought. I mean, it's reminiscent of the First World War, as opposed to the second, isn't it? In that you have relative stability. You have people digging in trenches, even creating on the Ukrainian side you know, relatively, it looks sort of comfortable um, uh, storerooms, bedrooms, etc. Um, <clears throat> in a trench warfare system, I mean, it's horrifically reminiscent of the of the First World War. Um, and yet, those emplacements can't be very deep. If 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 they were to be overrun, it's not like you have secondary, tertiary uh, lines of defence. Well, I think there probably are second and third lines of defense as well in, 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 in on the front, because, of course, you have, you know, one of the principles of defense is defense in depth. Um, so that if you are your, your first line is broken, you've got some other other means of soaking up uh, an attack. And you're right. It, there, it, it's a funny it's it's extraordinary because you know, it's it's reminiscent, certainly of the First World War. Um, 
in the sense that this great trench line, which of course has not just been there since 20, the 24th of February last year, it's been there since, since 2014. Um, the Ukrainians have been fighting the Russians for eight years before this thing kicked off and lost, lost 10,000 people doing so. So, you know, they, they've had some hard fighting. Um, but, but given the scale of it, given the brutality of it, given the nature of the war as well, it's also reminiscent of the great patriotic war and, and the, the titanic clash between the Soviet Union and, and, and Nazi Germany. Uh, and I think we'll see more of that, uh, potentially a, a positional attritional war give way to maneuver on a grand scale ultimately which is ultimately what is going to give ukraine victory and that uh, it's interesting you mention um the great patriotic war because of course russian propagandists uh, and even now educationalists are very much positioning uh, this war as a sort of existential struggle for russia's existence and they've even made the fairly absurd claim uh that uh, this is this is a new patriotic war uh with 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 russia on obviously as the moral force in in their eyes um i mean this seems so absurd to us and yet do you think this actually plays quite well with some in the russian public well i think there's a there's a supreme irony here isn't there the the fact that what you the way that putin and his armies and air forces and navy have been behaving this launching of an unprovoked genocidal assault on a democratic peaceful neighbor without any cause at all except the cause of conquest of of rebuilding a russian empire of subjugating ukraine the nearest anybody has come to behaving like this in europe uh was obviously between 1939 and 1945 with the, with nazi germany under adolf hitler uh, so if anybody is, you know, Putin and his cohorts are describing the Zelensky regime as a Nazi regime, racist, anti-Semite, which, of course, is a supreme irony and a sort of supreme cynicism in the first place. But frankly, I think you've got to be careful with historical analogies. But if there's any analogy, um, it is between Putin and Hitler, because this is what Putin, this, Putin is fundamentally doing to Ukraine, what Hitler tried to do to the Soviet Union, and of course, in doing so to Ukraine. On the sort of issue of the thinking of the Russian people, this is a really tricky one. I think we have to recognize, and you've lived in, you've lived in Russia, you know this much better than I do, but that Putin has been in control, has controlled the information space for 23 years now since he, he's, he's taken power. And in 90, 75% of Russians get their news from state-controlled media. Um, and I think that apart from a very small number of very brave Russians um, standing up in public to oppose it, and of course they've been banged away to jail, in jail pretty quickly after that, hundreds of thousands of young men who frankly legged it from Russia as soon as the mobilization papers started being sent out last September. I'm afraid I think, the and despite the massive casualties that the Russians are, are taking, which must be having an impact on Russian families, all the indications are that Russians either submit passively 
which I guess has been part of the Rus Russian condi condition for, for centuries, because that's all you can do. You either submit passively or you accept tacitly. And thus far, there have been no real indications of any popular, genuine popular opposition to the war. Protests, yes, in particularly in countries like Dagestan, uh, which 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 uh, took a large number of casualties in the early phase of the war and then pushed back against the numbers mobilized. But I think the Russians just are conditioned a to accept and put up and almost take a pride in suffering. And B, they've been conditioned by years of Putinism to see the West as a as a as a direct threat. In fact, I mean, there's one contingent of the Russian population who is still in the country and is quite vociferous. But that is even more worrying because it's the extreme nationalists and the so-called community of military bloggers who are sort of quasi-official. At least they are generally tolerated to spew sort of bile and hate. They've been extraordinarily critical, uh, not typically of Putin, uh, because that that's probably a step too far, but certainly critical of many of the commanders, the army and so on. Um, but their criticism is mainly that uh, the Russian army has failed, not that it's, um, you know, performing immoral acts. Uh, they're accusing the government of not going far enough. So that's perhaps a, a worrying trend that's emerged uh, through the course of this war. I agree completely. Um, and you're absolutely right. The Many of the bloggers, uh, and not not just the bloggers, but but men like Prigozhin, who, who who runs the Wagner Group, have been hypercritical of the the Russian army, and tacitly therefore critical of Putin for not taking the gloves off, not being brutal enough. And I think just this highlights the the nature of the the longer term threat that Europe faces and indeed you know the western world faces from russia that even if putin is replaced he's not going to be replaced by a, a, a an olive olive branch bearing liberal seeking peace and accommodation with with the west and imposing and bringing democracy sweeping democracy into russia he is much more likely to be replaced by somebody even more hardline and i think we have to accept we the west we nato have to accept that even if the guns fall silent in Ukraine, and even if Ukraine achieves its military objectives, either 100% or sufficient to ensure that it can guarantee its security and sovereignty against Russia, we will continue to face a threat from Russia indefinitely. I think I think that's correct. And there's a lot of wishful thinking around the Russian liberal opposition. And uh, as you say, there are individuals who've taken extremely courageous uh, stances like uh, Vladimir uh, Karamurza, Ilya Yashin. Um, Ukrainians would, would, would not necessarily concur with this, but Navalny's um, symbolism in going back to Russia was an extremely uh, sort of brave move. Um, <clears throat> nonetheless, Russians tend to describe the years of 2000 to 2012 as vegetarian times um, compared to the current times, which I assume would be carnivorous. It seems to me the Russian liberal opposition is still quite vegetarian in its approach to um, to uh, the Putin regime and just doesn't have the the ruthlessness uh, and and the. Um, the willingness to 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 perhaps resort to violence uh, or more extreme measures 
to try and root out the regime, the FSB, the GRU, and these extraordinarily powerful and um, sadistic organizations. I just suspect the liberals are too too uh, too soft and civilized to really take on this monster. I'm sure that's right. You know, one has to you know understand the position the liberals face. They face a a, a, a massive, massive challenge. Uh, and my own view is that I don't think Russia is ever going to change this this mentality unless unless it goes through the sort of Nullstunde that Germany went through in 1945. And we all know why Germany went through that in 1945. It was unconditional surrender. And that I forced on it by the, the Allies. And that is never going to happen in Russia. I mean, principle, you know, military principle number one is you don't mar march on Moscow. Uh, and nobody's going to, to, to do that, particularly against a, a nuclear-armed Russia. Uh, and so therefore, if you can't do that, you have to accept that Russia will remain I mean, it's going to be. I mean, it's a it's an extreme example, extreme metaphor. But in a sense, it's Europe chained to a lunatic as its neighbour for the foreseeable future. Uh, I mean, and yes, we must do everything we can to empower, support any a form of liberal opposition. We must do everything we can to open up, open the eyes of decent Russians as to what is being perpetrated in them in their name through you know strategic communications information trying to find ways to repeat, repeat what, what was done so successfully towards the end of the Cold War with you know, the World Service, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, um, television beaming into homes, East German homes, et cetera, et cetera, homes in, in the Warsaw Pact, which, which undermined the Warsaw Pact so successfully. But, but it's a different, different order of magnitude now. So I'm afraid you know, we've got to be pragmatic and we've got to say this is what we're faced with for generations to come. And then there are a whole lot of so what's for NATO, for Western Europe. The first one, of course, is Ukraine has to become part of NATO. I think probably that apply. I think that also absolutely applies to Georgia and Moldova. Um, we have to assume that Russia will remain a threat in perpetuity because it has this fundamental i mean you mentioned carnivorous i mean it is voracious and it's voracious in a sense because russia has never been a sovereign state in the way that france has been a sovereign state or or you know britain a sovereign state for 300 years since the union the united states is a sovereign state i mean italy germany sovereign states but russia has never despite the you know late unification for germany and italy russia has never been like that Russia has only ever existed as an empire and has only been able to survive through being voracious and gobbling up its neighbors. It's so deep in the DNA that we have to assume it will stay there uh, eternally. And that means that we have to be prepared to deter Russia in the same way that we deterred the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And there's another interesting characteristic uh, that, um, again, not to stretch historical analogies too far, but there's a, a tactic that uh, certainly Nazi Germany used and which you see very much in display in the uh, uh, Russian propaganda, and that is of aggressive victimhood. That is attacking while claiming you are the victim, flipping everything on its head in quite an absurd manner. But that sense of victimhood is an incredibly powerful and toxic emotion.
Yes, and it plays again into the pop, the minds of the of the, of the, of the Russian population. Uh, it plays on their uh, insecurities, and of course, it can it can it it, it 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 then reinforces the sense that you know. And we've heard this from Putin so much. You know, the policy of containment. I'm quoting from his speech in the Kremlin on the 14th of March, 2014. The policy of containment of the 18th, the 19th, and the 20th centuries is still going on. Uh, the sense that of encirclement, that Russia is a victim and 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 has been is is threatened by by nefarious and 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 dangerous outside forces bent on destroying the third Rome and the foundation of of, of foundations of Russia. And that 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 idea is baked very deeply. That's not just Putin who came up with that. That goes back uh, into the 19th century. And um, there are a whole range of fairly fascistic philosophers and thinkers, many, of course, driven by orthodox faith as well from the 1930s, 20s, 30s and 40s. Um, and I think uh, even though some of those ideas might seem quite sort of garbled and rehashed, I think they do provide a source of uh, inspiration for the regime. Um one of the other things I want to tackle, and you've been incredibly, uh, say, outspoken on this, obviously proven to be correct, but that is tackling the language of appeasement. And of course, with the leopards and the heavy armor being announced, um, or not quite announced, but uh, surreptitiously announced through the press, but not made official yet, we're bound to get this language of escalation coming from the Kremlin. And we're also bound to hear that language being repeated as if through an echo chamber by uh, those who who nominally are pacifist or maybe even Russian sympathizers. Why is it this language of escalation is really the language of the aggressor and we should be tackling that and arguing vociferously against it? Well, I think it's difficult to see um, how much more, yes, of course, nuclear remains a very real threat and a deeply dangerous threat. But frankly, the way Putin and Russia has behaved has escalated this about as far as it can go in conventional terms. It's difficult to see what what more depredations he could he could reach. Albeit, as you said, I think before we started talking, he has this ability. The Russians have this ability to dig to the bottom of the barrel and then find greater depths to go to, which I think is a classic line. Um, I mean, I I I can completely understand the concerns of decent, small-L, liberal, anti-military forces, individuals who hate the notion of war, hate the notion of military force I can in the West. I completely understand that. I would be the first to say if we lived in 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 in, in utopia let's get rid of let's get rid of our tanks, our guns, our soldiers, our sailors, our, our battleships, our, our fighter aircraft. And put the money, invest the money into 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 into, into more productive areas, of course, and to make society better. Wouldn't it be wonderful? But sadly, we don't live in a world like that. We're living in a world where you know wolf eats wolf, uh, the bear eats the bear, and the only way that we are going to live peacefully, the way to achieve peace, the way to avoid a catastrophe, a complete catastrophe, a, a catastrophic third world war, which is what war between the West and Russia would be, because it could also spread more widely. The only way to avoid that catastrophe is to be strong, 
It was Churchill who said the Russians only understand strength. I think you touched on yourself earlier. And it's absolutely right. If you demonstrate any weakness, you're going to get walked over. And we don't want to be walked over. The way, therefore, to avoid being walked over, the way to continue to live in peace is to be strong, is to understand that we have to protect ourselves. And the way to protect ourselves is through that old-fashioned way of deterrence. I mean, if you want to deter a burglar, you demonstrate that you've got the means to defend yourself, whether through security lighting or burglar alarms or, you know, neighborhood watch or whatever. The way to defend yourself against an aggressor in a military aggressor, in the way that Russia is a naked military aggressor, and I've no doubt if it had the capability, if Russia had not been so seriously fixed by the brave, agile, and heroic Ukrainian defense, it would absolutely be looking to have a go at Georgia, at Moldova. It's already had a go at Georgia, of course, and at the Baltic states, um, and therefore take on NATO. And therefore, NATO's got to be strong, and the nations have got to be strong, and we've got to be strong. And that means, in, I'm afraid, investing in military capability, because that is the way you prevent escalation. And Ukraine has been extraordinarily effective, far more so perhaps than any of the analysts <clears throat> at the start of the war would have suspected. I know that, that you, Ben Hodges and others uh, are perhaps less surprised uh, by its capability. But what Ukraine seems to have been able to do is to grasp the idea of uh, um, the, 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 the economics of force, I think it's described as. And they've been able to impose huge costs on the Russian army while trying to be economical with their own equipment and their own lives. Could you describe in military terms how that works and why this Ukrainian strategy has been uh, successful to date? Well, I always, I'll, I'll, I'll freely admit, I, I always knew the Ukrainians were going to fight like tigers. But I assumed, like I think most Western commentators, that they would ultimately commit to capitulate and that the Russians were going to be much more effective than they have been and that the Russians would succeed in, in, in forcing capitulation. Um, I think the Ukrainians have demonstrated given us a master class in the applications of the principles of war, um, selection and maintenance of the aim, concentration of force, security, economy of force. In other words, ensuring that when you when you fight, you have thought about it and you take you fight on your own terms and you don't match enemy strength with your strength. You look for enemy vulnerability and enemy weakness, and that's where you apply your strength. And of course, what they've also done, I mean, in terms of the thinking and the planning, the whole essence of operational art is to think it through, understand where you want to be strategically, and then to and then to construct the, the, the tactical steps in a logical sequence and to wargame it and to really thoroughly wargaming your plans against a a red team representing role-playing the enemy who will find holes in your plan. And then you go back to the beginning and think it through again, put together mitigation strategies uh, against so, so certain contingencies. And I think they've done that superbly. They also managed to do manage the security very successfully as well, in the sense that they've managed to assemble 
force uh, and notably in the offensive in uh, east of Kharkiv last year, uh, towards the end of the summer, where they regained a significant amount of ground uh, as a result of, of, of assembling a force, a reserve force that was going to be capable of pushing through without the Russians picking it up. Um, but it coming back to the key argument here, this is about, you know, if the Ukrainians continue to do that, they're going to continue to need our support, our help, and our ability to give them the tools to do the job. And I think the final area is this sort of inextinguishable, burning will, determination to defeat the Russians who have despoiled their land, their people, their women, their children, and, and nothing is going to extinguish that. And we've done it. The Ukrainians, despite the mass assault by missile attack on their cities, on their power distribution outlets, their power stations and the like, they continue to demonstrate this extraordinary will under the supremely charismatic leadership, of course, of President Zelensky. It's not a yeah, Sorry. Sorry. Enough of, enough of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, I mean, it's not a struggle for uh, for resources or power or influence. It's literally a life and death struggle, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, in, in Cromwell's words, the Ukrainians, you know, know what they fight for and love what they know, um, which is what Cromwell described his soldiers of the, of the new model army. Well, that, you know, that is that. Is, and, and, and the Russians don't. They don't know what they're fighting for and they don't love what they know. What Russian is going to risk his life to attack? You know, why should they risk their lives to attack Ukraine? Um, I mean, many of them are because they're being forced into it at bayonet point and the like. But ultimately, right is on Ukraine's side and it'll pre prevail. I mean, this this I would almost call it sort of cowardliness of lobbing missiles uh, over. I mean, first of all, it, it uh, reflects the weakness of uh, the Russians' ability to sort of project force in a conventional sense. Um, but also it points towards, I think, a challenge which I think is very difficult to answer because it, it's, it's quite a concerning one. And that is, will taking back all of their territory be enough for Ukraine? Will they not also have to make the bases that are firing missiles and artillery across the border somehow they're going to have to make those inoperable as well i think it's a good point um i mean many of the russian missile attacks are coming from deep within russia um or from the black sea fleet um, and belarus which uh, and, another and, and belarus as well exactly that and that is that will remain a, a, a real a real challenge and it is it is supremely cowardly um it's designed to undermine civilian morale, but it's failed signally to to do so. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is this is clearly something, and you know, diff ultimately, Ukraine has to remove the threat to its territory, to its cities posed by Russia, and uh, and and that's not only about taking ground, but ensuring that it has the air defense the Patriot missile systems to continue to protect itself against missiles being lobbed at it once the fighting on the ground uh, has, 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 has come to some form of conclusion. And throughout your uh, very powerful interviews this year, you've been continuously pointing out that the West is a little behind the curve. We are reactive to events rather than necessarily planning ahead for them, or at least that's the impression that's created. Do we now need to be thinking not just about Russian defeat, but about the potential collapse of the Russian Federation and what we would do in those circumstances? Do you feel there's a, a lack of planning around that? 
there is a lack of there is absolutely a lack of strategy uh, as to where what what NATO and the West will be faced with subsequently. And what, which is why I say, I mean, the fundamental is is to start putting in place the long term deterrence against uh, whatever happens in Russia, whether it is you know, the extreme example, the collapse of the Russian Federation, the cha chaos involving, uh, you know, a, the vast country with whatever it is, 11 time zones and umpteen million and nuclear weapons. Um, that is, you know, part of which part of it, all of which could continue to will continue to pose a threat. Um, and this comes back to, as I said, to deterrence. And the only way we're going to be deterred is through being militarily strong. And thus far, and accepting that we have to be prepared for the worst case, which is what the Cold War was all about. Um, you know, it was being prepared for the worst case. It was a, uh, accepting that the Third World War remained a very real possibility and putting in place not only the military means to defend ourselves with large numbers of troops and aircraft, for example, in the Central Front in 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 Europe, uh, based in Germany and elsewhere, to deter group of Soviet forces Germany from attacking West Germany. But it, at home, it was civil defense. It was civil defense exercises. It was home defense. All that structure. I mean, none of it exists now. And it was effective defense spending. And we're in a parlous state, frankly. There's no thinking at all. And nobody is saying properly, wake up, smell the coffee. We face a really dangerous generation now, and we need to look to our own defenses. I've heard no senior politician say anything like that at all and recognizing what needs to be done uh, in terms of UK defense. And it's not just in UK, of course, it's right across the alliance, all 30 member states soon, hopefully there'll be 32, need to be thinking in those sort of terms. And another aspect of planning for the conclusion of this war, and this is definitely my last question here, because I know uh, our time is coming to an end, but um, when Ukraine is victorious, and I think we, we have no doubt that they will be, what must be the scope and scale of the war crimes processes, even if we can't get our hands physically on the perpetrators because uh, they're skulking in Moscow? What must we put in place to make sure that these crimes are at least aired uh, you know, in a public forum? Well, I think it's absolutely, you're absolutely right. I mean, there must be proper accountability um, across the board and Russian commanders, Russian politicians uh, and, and, and those who perpetrated, perpetrated these crimes must be pursued um, as far as, you know, to the end if necessary. And they must never, never be allowed to 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 get to get off. Now, easier said than done. At the end of the Second World War, the the, the Allies were the were the were the victors and were, were able to prosecute war war crimes. I think the the you know the war in Yugoslavia was an interesting one because many of those war criminals went underground uh, and 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 hid for years to years. But nevertheless, ultimately, you know, Milosevic, um, Mladic were were forced to face the music in 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 the hague um and that required enormous effort resilience determination patience to prosecute to, to you know to put together the cases uh, and ultimately to to take you know to take the take take people to court even if people don't get, end up in court in 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 the hague it doesn't stop the international community forming a you know, an equivalent to the ICTY, which looked at Ukraine, war crimes in, in Yugoslavia, for example, 
to prosecute this and to accept this could be this could be a, a 30 40 year process um uh, if, even if longer and that those and that even if long after they've left this earth the names of those who perpetrated these war crimes are, are stand indicted before humanity for for history to come well, so Richard, I'm incredibly grateful to you for spending uh, so much time to go sort of go through these issues and for your absolutely sort of unambiguous and clear uh, sort of moral statement that we ended on there. Um, I know our audience are going to incredibly appreciate your insights and uh, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much indeed. And, and very good to very good to talk to you. Thank you.